Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, is Matt DiPerno the next likely chair of the Michigan Republican Party? Bill Ballinger of the Ballinger Report believes so, but candidate Drew Bourne does not. Hear Bourne talk about how he would bring the passion of the base and the pocket of the donors. Chris Savage, former chair of the Washington County Democratic Party, says he expects a competitive U.S. Senate primary on the Democratic side. The MERS team and Ballinger also talk about potential Democratic committee burnout and Republicans' threats to gum up the works over right to work. Now, here's MERS News editor Kyle Malin with publisher John Rurink and reporter Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. Well, we've got a great edition of the MERS podcast coming up here. Over the weekend, Matt DiPerno got a huge boost for his campaign to be the next Republican Party chair when the former president, Donald Trump, said that he is going to be back in the former attorney general nominee for the post out of a field of 11 people. Joining us here, Bill Ballinger, who's uh, followed Republican politics uh, longer than I've been alive. Is this open and shut now for Matt DiPerno? Is this game, set, match? It would appear so. That would be my opinion, unless some individual candidate out of the plethora of other candidates beside DiPerno emerges as an alternative to DiPerno that everybody else could rally behind and you get a one-on-one between DiPerno and whoever this person might be, uh, I would say that in a split field with all these candidates, you've got Trump endorsing DiPerno, uh, it's going to be very tough for him to lose. The Trump faction of the party really is going to control this convention, in my opinion, and it's a game, set, match, as you said. John, remember when we did the straw poll with the Michigan Republican Party in the last convention, we found over 55% of those at that convention said that they would be the most excited if Donald Trump were to run for president again. Well, he is, and if those same people come back and support DiPerno, it it would seem like this race is a fait accompli. It would seem so, especially based on the mix of delegates that, that they brought in last year to secure the whole AG nominee, Secretary of State combo that Sean Maddock was working for, working towards. I'm curious to hear Bill's analysis, too. Do you think, based on DiPerno's history and his sort of, uh, uh, I guess, personality, could could he be a good chair? What's your assumption of what his chairmanship might be like? Stranger things could happen, John, but they're very unlikely. DiPerno's personality, from what I've seen, isn't made to be a chairman of the disparate, dysfunctional Michigan Republican Party at this time, maybe he'll surprise us. Maybe he's got talents we haven't seen. And I say we, I'm talking about the news media, but also the general public and the political Mm -hmm. community and his ability to raise money, which is a huge question for the Republicans right now, based on their terrible performance in that department last year. DiPerno doesn't seem like the kind of person who can do that. So I think the Republicans are destined to have uh, a very flawed, weak chairman uh, in the foreseeable future if DiPerno is elected. Because we we talked about it a lot, Kyle, on the podcast about last cycle, how the Republicans kind of ran away from their traditional funding base, playing to the strong hand that they've had perhaps in the past with groups like 
the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. And I don't see that changing necessarily with, with a Matt DiPerno as chair. Yeah, I, I think Matt DiPerno's strengths have been in organizing. If you look at the last couple conventions, Matt DiPerno's done a great job in getting his people to these county conventions, sometimes amid some pretty serious controversy here in Hillsdale and Macomb County, and then getting those people to show up at the state convention and support him fairly uh, unanimously from what I can tell that certainly has been one of his strengths as far as fundraising I think that's been another matter Sam what what do you make of this DePerno ascendancy I mean I just run into a question here is being a party chair has it become more about be becoming an icon in Donald Trump's nation as opposed to being the wizard behind the curtain. Uh, you know, I think we look over on the Democratic side, you have Lavora Barnes, and Lavora Barnes has obviously received a lot of media attention after Democrats' success in the last November election. But she is very much, I would feel comfortable describing her as a wizard behind the curtain. Uh, you know, she is handling conversations on the inside of the party, uh, networking, fundraising, etc. You know, she's very much being an organizer as opposed to a Democratic celebrity. And I think that's an issue with Matt DiPerno. Is he someone who's going to care more about becoming a conservative celebrity as opposed to the individual behind the curtain that sometimes doesn't have the most glorious tasks at hand? Um, and I think the I think this Trump endorsement is evidence of that. The Trump endorsement is still such a postmodern frequency now, but I mean, is it normal for a president or, you know, someone of a lot of political noteworthiness to get involved in a leadership, a party leadership technical race like this? That's a great question, Bill. I mean, we don't usually see this, do we? No. Look, connecting what you said, Kyle, what Sam said, I mean, first of all, I say, I actually think this convention is likely to be even more pro-Trump than the one that met last year, based on the delegates that were elected. Secondly, I would have to point out, Kyle, that getting your troops who support you, meaning DePerno, to show up at conventions and winning a majority vote at a convention is a far different thing than being the state Republican chairman. You do need a chairman who's more like the chairman of the Michigan Democratic Party right now. Somebody who, once they get the job, they're not conservative Trump-like icons interested in publicity and news bites. Uh, they're interested in organizing a broad umbrella-based Republican Party, trying to pull these two factions, the Trump faction and the traditional conservative establishment Republicans together and operating on the same page. And I don't think we've seen anything from DePerno that indicates he can do that. Well, and then I also wonder, John, if Matt DePerno just becomes a puppet for Donald Trump and if the same criticism that we saw under the last tenure with the co-chair playing favorites in the primary rear its head again where you have Donald Trump, who's obviously running a primary, uh, is is the chair then seen as maybe playing favorites if this becomes competitive at a certain point, the presidential race? I don't think it would be a very good a very good situation for, well, I mean, DiPerno's going to favor Trump, obviously. That's who brought him to the dance. That's who got him uh, into the seat. Uh, but I could see a point where it's, it's very difficult to have any faith that the Republican Party is going to play it fair with other candidates. And that's just going to further diminish a party that's already struggling 
to have some validity. All right. Well, let's turn the page here to the next subject I wanted to bring up. Uh, over the last couple workdays, uh, Samantha, you were hard at work counting up how many committees different members of the state Senate are sitting on, which, uh, as we found out, is quite a few. So that was what I was working on um, near the end of last week. And when it comes to Senate Democrats, the average Democratic senator is going to be sitting on nearly eight committees. And that's going to include administrative rules, standing committees, and appropriation subcommittees. And on my list, when it comes to senators with the most committee assignments, you have Senator Santana, um, the Detroit Democrat of 11, and then Senators Kleinfeld, Cherry, Bayer, Camilleri, and McDonald Rivet, each serving on 10 different committees. Uh, and this is a pretty large number. Um, I think this is going to raise, uh, we kind of saw early on um, a little bit of Republican conversation of concern if there was not enough Republican representation on these various committees in both the Senate and House. Uh, but most importantly, as we look at Democrats that went from maybe serving three, four committees as part of the minority, have seen their committee's assignment more than double. Um, is there a risk of burnout at hand as we look at this? And as we look at it historically, uh, usually in the majority, members have, if we go back, uh, you know, 30 years ago, four or five committees. Uh, so to go from four or five committees with the max being seven to where the average is eight with the majority being at 11, Bill, that's a you used to serve in the Senate. That's a hell of a lot of committees. Could you imagine sitting on 11 committees? It's absurd, Kyle. This never should happen. And why it's happened over the years, you wrote a great article about it in MERS last week. Thing missing from the article, but maybe we can come up with something right now or the conversation will start. It's why has this happened over time? I mean, forget 30 years ago, 50 years ago. You had people serving on, you know, two, three, four committees. That was it. Eight committees is too many committees to ask these members to serve on. And that's an average. Mm -hmm. As you said, there are a couple of them that are like 10 or 11 committees. Are you kidding me? Why is this? And why Bill, is there such a disparity between the majority and minority? It shouldn't be that big. Don't you think it probably has to do with fundraising? That is a terrible thing. I mean, if it's true, John. Well, I'm not saying it's a. Right. I don't, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's certainly the more committees you sit on, the more bases you have, the more groups of people you have to go raise funds with, right? Well, John, you could be right. Okay, maybe that's the explanation. That is the most cynical explanation I can imagine, but you could be absolutely correct, and it is abominable. It's a terrible development in Michigan politics and government that you are. Basing your committee assignments on making policy for the people of Michigan based on how much money you can raise as a senator because of committees you sit on, how many you sit on, how many interest groups you connect with, how many lobbyists you can develop relationships with. That is a terrible thing. And they should get away from this as fast as they can. I know they're not. Uh, we're cynics here. I am at this point, John, you've convinced me, <laughs> but I'm telling you, it is a terrible development. 
Well, I wonder, and well, this isn't just the Democrats who have started this. The Republicans, oh no. the Republicans oh no. last term had their committee members stretched out pretty thin as well. And it just seems like from a member standpoint that it would put a lot of strain on these people going hopping from committee to committee to committee. Um, and, and all I think really to make sure that the desired policy gets out so that if you have one member of the majority who really feels strongly against a particular bill, uh, you can still move it over the objections of that one person. But uh, in doing that, you really are putting a lot of putting a lot of pressure and I, I think putting a lot of responsibility on these on these individuals. Well, and you're, you're absolutely probably, right. Too yeah, much. And you're too much. Probably reducing their ability to actually understand and get in in depth with the issues that they have to that they have to tackle. Well, it takes I, time to understand these issues. They're complex and you gotta dig into them. And if you've got to dig into eleven different sets of issues, that makes it more hard, makes it more difficult. To kind of jump back into 1987, which is when Republicans held a 20 to 17 seat majority in the Michigan Senate, very similar to the 20 to 18 seat majority that Democrats have now in the Senate. Uh, you know, the average majority caucus member had nearly four committee assignments with the average Democratic senator having, you know, a little over three on average. I think burnout is here being a concern. I think what John said, you know, these are very multifaceted topics. A committee, a committee is essentially a genre into many much deeper subjects, a policy. Uh, but I think this also goes into terms that Democrats have a majority that they haven't had before, especially in the Senate in several decades. And Senator Brinks has said that, you know, this is 40 years of pent up policy. And I think these Democrats, you know, they all want to have their hands on various different pots. Yeah, uh, they yeah. all want to be a part of the conversation, uh, especially education has significantly more committee members, elections and ethics, significantly more committee members. Um, I think it's people just wanting to be a part of the conversation that they were not at the table at before. That's a good point. A lot of excitement, a lot of excitement on the Republican side. Now we're going to change subjects here a little bit on the Republican side. There's some excitement about what they can do to be relevant in the legislative conversation. We did a story last week about how Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt said, if the Democrats want to go down the road of right to work and repealing right to work, they can forget about getting the Republican support for immediate effect on any other economic development program. So that means any more money that goes into SOAR or, um, you know, diverting money from SOAR to various projects, they're going to vote no on immediate effect. So for an appropriations bill, what that means is that it doesn't go into effect until 90 days after signing die. Signing die is usually December 29, December 30. We're talking March of 24. So they could withhold immediate effect for any economic development pro projects if right to work is passed, or if they if the you know, Democrats want to uh, move up the primary and the Republicans don't want to do that, they could withhold immediate effect on that as well and really gum up the works. Bill, I'll start with you on this here. The Republicans do have some leverage here, don't they? Oh, absolutely they do. I mean, it's almost like Back in the Paleolithic era, 1971 to 74, when I was in the Senate, it was a 1919 Senate. It was split right down the middle. It wasn't 2018. And, you know, the Democrats uh, were not able to control that, 
chamber because the Republicans had the tie-breaking vote and the Lieutenant Governor Jim Brickley, opposite of the situation today where the Democrats have the tie-breaking vote in Garland Gilchrist. But guess what? The Democrats at that time could always simply have one member sit on his hands. And I say his because there were no women uh, Democrats in the Senate at that time and not vote on a particular bill. If you've got to have 20 votes, a majority of those elected and serving out of 38 to pass a bill, and it comes down to 1918, guess what? Lieutenant governor doesn't get to cast the tie-breaking vote. So that's the leverage the Democrats had. And the Republicans, even though we controlled the chamber, we had the chairmanship of all the committees, and we had a majority on each committee, by the way, a very slim majority on each committee, unlike today, Uh, We knew that the Democrats could confound us or anything that we as Republicans wanted to do with Governor Milliken as a Republican governor if they simply withheld a vote. And frankly, I think the Democrats now, even though they've got an absolute majority, 2018, you know, they got to be careful on how they proceed. They really do need Republican votes. And I think that's something else we could have mentioned in our last conversation. One of the reasons you make a big disparity between the majority and minority on a committee is so you've got one or two votes as a cushion. If one or two of your members defect on a certain bill and committee that you want reported out and you you know that the Republicans are going to be against that uh, particular bill, uh, you want to make sure you got enough Democrats as the majority on the committee that you will be able to get that bill out of committee, even if you lose one or two of your own members on the committee in the vote. So, I mean, there's got to be some real kind of like 1993-94 shared power going on in both the House and Senate, in my view, if they're going to get things done, if they're going to get cooperation. And otherwise, if the Democrats try and exert too much muscle behind things that some of their vested interest groups like organized labor want, they could blow up their whole session and blow up the whole process and really screw it up. And yes, if I were Eric Nesbitt, the Senate Majority Leader, I would do exactly what he's talking about. I would play that card. I would withhold immediate effect. I'd do anything else to gum up the works any way they can. So if they go that route, John, you got to wonder, will the Democrats try and change the rules as it comes to immediate effect and make it as it is in the House where they just do a voice vote? Uh, is there anything else they can do? Well, from a strategy standpoint, first of all, if, if, if right to work is to trigger and they really want to do it, you, you, you take it up in the end of lame duck where uh, uh, denying immediate effect on bills doesn't matter anymore. Uh, because all the legislation that's passed, I'm assuming he would have granted immediate effect to for the most part, by and large. Uh, the other thing is if a primary bill, let's say that gets stuck and they're denying uh, immediate effect for it, there really is no Democratic control legislature couldn't just adjourn sine die early enough uh, for that law to take effect in time for the president. Now, that would be interesting. We haven't seen that in a long time where they just adjourn, let's say, in June like they used to, and then the governor could always call them back into special session. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the a- benefits of having control of everything. Yeah, this is brave new world we're embarking on right now. Something that hasn't been seen since, you know, 1964 was probably the last time. Yep. 
when they used to adjourn in the spring, maybe as late as June. Uh, yes, the governor then has the power to call them back in session. Now, the legislature doesn't have to do anything. Uh, but, of course, the Democrats control everything, so they would be glad to bring up anything they want to. And then for the rest of the year, they could just proceed as though this was a continuous session. But meanwhile, the clock would run on the bills that they had passed at the time they adjourned sine die, and they would go into effect three months after that. So it wouldn't be March or April of next year. Maybe it would go into effect like in August or September of this year. They'd right. g- gain about six months. I just have to retreat back to, you know, Senator Senate Majority Leader Brinks saying that there's more than 40 years of pent up policy on the table right now. With that being said, I think Democrats have to be very careful when choosing what hills they want to die on. Um, You know, I with that being said, I want to quote kind of a early December poll that came out that was commissioned by Progress Michigan through public policy polling. It found that 42 percent of respondents either strongly or somewhat supported repealing Michigan's right to work laws, uh, 26% opposed it, and 31% were not sure if the law should be revoked. So here you have kind of a larger margin of individuals that either oppose a right to work repeal or just aren't really sure how they feel about the issue in general. It's not something that was at the top of their head when they went to vote in November. Uh, With that being said, I mean, Democrats have a lot of policy proposals, uh, specifically one that's coming to the top of my mind, and that's going to be dealing with the income tax on retirement incomes. You know, that's going to be a big can of worms for Democrats to dive into, uh, especially when we get into the debate of, you know, is it covering only pension incomes or all retirement incomes, et cetera. Um, You know, I think with the policy that they have at at hand, wanting to make large scale economic change in the state of Michigan, which direction are you going to choose and which direction is going to prove not to be worth of time? Because I can definitely say that as a reporter, I was not surprised at all with Senator Nesbitt's announcement and strategy for this. Well, we'll see uh, what ends up playing out and if they can come to some kind of deal on both the presidential primary and right to work to prevent these kind of nuclear and historical scenarios that we're painting here that are all possibilities, altering how immediate effect is done, adjourning early so that bills that don't have immediate effect can go into an effect earlier than normal. All very interesting things that could play out. Bill, we appreciate you taking some time and talking with us. We're going to move on now to the next section of our podcast. Joining us now on the podcast is a candidate for the Michigan Republican Party chair position. It is Drew Bourne. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start here by just introducing yourself to our listeners. If they don't know who you are, let's uh, let's hear the quick bio on Drew Bourne. Um, born and raised West Michigan, went right on the Kent and Allegan border in Allegan County, uh, went to South High School, followed up by Hope, where I was originally going to go be a doctor. Um, I switched to business shortly after uh, well, after going through all the classes I needed to be a uh, doctor and decided that business was going to be a better route for me when I uh, started a business at uh, Hope, where I decided to put live streaming cameras on Santa and his reindeer during the Christmas season. Um, this is back in 2010. 
and we started a app and a website called reindeercam.com. So this is at the beginning of live streaming. It's hard to believe, you know, as we're live streaming now in 2010, that wasn't even a thing. And uh, I would go out three times a day during the Christmas season and dress up like Santa the first year and uh, feed the reindeer and uh, read stories to kids. The second year we hired a uh, hired a Santa and put apps in the app store where we sold hundreds of thousands of apps around the world. And uh, I did that till 2015 when my business partner took it over. And now I do commercial real estate full time. The reindeer cam. I'd never heard that yep. before. Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, we'd get rough, you know, 100 million views a year, you know, so it was a it was a pretty big app, you know, schools, teachers, you know, it was a, a good motivation for kids to uh, uh, go to bed early. And uh, it was it was a busy two months out of the year, we do letters back from Santa and, and uh, kids could join the nice list club. And it was a lot of fun. Interesting. Now, uh, I understand that your your parents are also pretty renowned people in the West Michigan community. So my father passed away when I was eight, 1998. Um, he was a diehard Republican my entire life, and uh, he uh, was very involved at the Kent GOP uh, you know, all through the 80s and 70s. And uh, um, my mom was a doctor as well, too. She still runs the the clinic and after he passed away i was her date and uh to all the uh, republican events so i've i've been going and attending uh republican events my entire life since i was knee-high to a grasshopper and then she remarried right yeah she married jc heisinga in 2013 all right so how did you and then let's get into how you got into politics these days i understand that you were instrumental in finding a challenger or getting a challenger for Peter Meyer, the former congressman. Yeah, absolutely. So early on uh, 2019, I was a Peter Meyer supporter, um, worked, you know, help, you know, help fundraising with him. And uh, um, even though I did have some reservations early on, he was obviously better than uh, he was the best. He was the best chance that we had back in 2019. Um, after he decided to vote against his constituents on the 3rd of January in 20, uh, 2020, uh, I, I, I volunteered to help him out and say, we can make this right. Let's do it right. And then he just kept on voting against the way that we as voters hired him to vote. And to the point where I was like, I'm going to primary myself. I even, you know, bought the domain name bornforcongress.com. I was, if I couldn't find anybody else to get rid of him, I was going to do it myself. And uh, then we then uh, found John Gibbs, who is one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life. Most intelligent, well-spoken, and I loved everything that John had to do. And uh, and obviously we, we you know won the primary at about a thirteen or fourteen to one dollar spend with uh, with John. And unfortunately, with the redistricting, we weren't able to win the general. But uh, yeah, so we I was very. Uh, uh, I was one of the first supporters. I was the first person to meet with John and encourage him to run back in, uh, what would have this been, 2020, 2020 or 2021 even, um, or 2021. So it was very early. I was also uh, one of the first people to sit down with Tudor Dixon um, after meeting with and talking with a lot of the candidates. I don't. Uh, I was behind Tudor before Perry or Rinky had entered the race, but I was one of the first people, especially in West Michigan, to uh, get behind her and said, no, Tudor's the one that's going to beat Weber. Um, so that's kind of my recent political uh, endeavors, and that's where uh, led me to here today. 
on the on the on the race for the chairmanship. Um, yeah. As you look at as you look at Weiser's chairmanship uh, with Bishan Maddock, what would you do differently? Uh, where do you see opportunity for change? I guess that a that a born uh, chair would would bring to the party. Um. Well, uh, I, I I have a lot of respect for Ron. I think he did he did a very good job and. Uh, but what happened, and I don't think this is Ron's fault, um, and so I want to make that very clear. But in it, over the last couple of years, a lot of people have lost faith in the MIGOP, and we need to renew that confidence back into the MIGOP. Um, in you know, Ron, I would say, you know, Ron was a very good supporter. I mean, Ron put a lot of his own money and don't. Uh, donations into the MIGOP to keep it to keep it afloat and keep it running and keep it running smoothly. Um, what we need to do is renew the confidence in the MIGOP, and, and we we did lose that, especially in West Michigan. Uh, I work a lot on the east side of the state too. I have a lot of connections on the east side of the state, and uh, the, the confidence isn't as lost on the east side of the state as it is in the west on the west side of the state. And we need to renew the confidence of just the voter and the donor back into the MIGOP in order to make 2024 successful for Republicans. When you looked at kind of some of the Republican losses in last November, there was a conversation about, you know, did former president Donald Trump have something to do with this? Does he have too much of a heavy impact on this party? Uh, what are your thoughts on that, especially after your competitor, Matt DiPerno, just got a Trump endorsement? You know, I, I was one of the first people to support Trump. I said the day that he rode down that elevator, I said, he's going to be president. And, you know, I'd be in commercial real estate myself. I'm like, what better? You know, I, I, I'm in different businesses every single day. Somebody that knows how to put a deal together better than anybody. I mean, that's who you want to be your president. So, and I, and I still stand behind him. And, you know, I, 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 I you know, I love Trump and I, I'll openly admit that. Um, I don't think that there's any reason whatsoever to blame him for the losses. I think, I think the biggest loss that we had in 2022 was the fact that we all thought that we were going to be able to outvote, outvote a lot of the fraud. And I think that we came and, and the Democrats played a better game. The Democrats were chasing ballots. They were way ahead of us, not only in the technology, but also in the ballot game. And now with proposal two, we got a lot of work to do. We need to step up our game. And it's going to take a lot of money to get going. Um, and uh, I'm drinking the same exact tea right now as you are. Um, but yes, uh, it is. Uh, I, I don't blame Trump at all. Um, but we need to change up our strategy moving into 2024. Uh, it's, if we're going to win it, if we're going to have any chance at all. How, how deflating is it to see that Donald Trump endorsed Matt DiPerno over the weekend? Uh, I, it doesn't bother me one bit. I, I mean, honestly, did a good job of uh, fighting for Trump and, you know, the, the fraud that, you know, in 2020. And, uh, you know, he was he was a big advocate to chase it down. And, uh, you know, it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, because of that relationship, there wasn't anybody else that was going to get that endorsement over him. Uh, to me, it doesn't really matter. I'm I threw my name in the hat the last minute for, you know, a few reasons, but that doesn't bother me. Do you still see yourself having a path to victory? Yeah. Yep. I think, I, I think that, uh, um, right. You know, this isn't a, a general public election, right? This is a delegate vote. And uh, I think I could win over the heart of the delegates without a problem. 
you talked earlier about um, the Democrats out chasing votes in terms of uh, the Republicans. Uh, is it time for Republicans to sort of flip the narrative on um, being so anti-mail-in vote? Well, with proposal two passed, I mean, we don't have an option, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, you know, there's not going to be another fair election in Michigan until we can get rid of mail-in ballots. I mean, there's just, it's just too easy to have fraud everywhere. And uh, we have to play the game and play the game better. There's no other option that we have um, until we can get mail-in votes, you know, eradicated from Michigan. While we're talking about votes, I do want to talk about the presidential primary. Um, You know, on the Democratic side, Michigan is about to become an early primary state, and Republicans might have to hold their own caucus so that they don't lose delegates on the national level. Uh, How do you imagine this type of caucus looking, or what are your kind of thoughts on what's going on in terms of presidential primaries? Um, You mean if we're going to... uh have a primary against Trump? Is that what you're getting at? No. So the DNC next month is the last vote on the new slate of early, you know, early primary states. Um, Michigan is also aligned to pass legislation that would move up our primary date. But if Republicans utilize that new early primary date, they could be penalized on the national level. Yeah. So, you know, with, with the way that we have become such a democratic state, you know, they're going to do anything they can to make sure Michigan is always a forever democratic state for, you know, for, you know, for years and years, we flip flop back and forth, back and forth. And now for once in what, over 30 years, you know, we have a democratic governor and house, they're going to do anything they can to do any, to make sure that we have a democratic state forever. Um, we're not very far from being another Illinois or California in regards to this. And, well, five. The last thing we need is, you know, more people put pointing fingers at Michigan for for uh, losing elections here. So to to Sam's point, then, if Michigan is getting is going to move to a primary, which is in the last week of February, which is against RNC rules, do you yep. think that we should just push forward with a state run primary or should the Republican uh, Party? Uh, take over and run either a caucus or a convention as a way to select who gets Michigan's delegates at the next convention. I think we need to push forward with, you know, having our own, you know, uh, caucus convention. I don't think we need, I mean, or we're going to be in trouble if we move it. If we move it to the last week in February, we're going to have a lot of problems. So if we do a caucus or a convention, that might just be the way we'll have to do it. The Republicans. Yes. Okay. Yes. Are you at all concerned with the cost of that? I mean, because with the primary system the way it was, it, is it's, GOP going to be funded yeah. enough to be able to do it? Well, right now we're you know in debt. We're not, so no, we're not going to be funded enough to do it. But you know, if we if we go early, then we're going to lose regardless. So it's going to take money. What's your plan on raising the money? So, is, you know, there's a, if uh, I'll tell anybody, if you think that big dollars don't have a place in politics, I'm probably not the guy that you're going to want to vote for, because I think it's a both. And, you know, I, I think we need the small dollar donors. I think every single penny, every single twenty dollar donation that we can get is valuable. And we need thousands and thousands, and tens of thousands of those. But, uh, you know, the Democrats are outspending us you know, two to one in a lot of these elections. 
and you know, you know Whitmer had a, a treasure chest coming into you know against Tudor here, you know where Tudor had hardly anything, and Tudor and Whitmer's got you know twelve million dollars ready to go. So then those aren't coming from small dollar donors; those are coming from big dollar donors. So we're not going to win if we can't bring the large dollar donor in. So we need to renew the confidence of the large dollar donor of the donor base to the MIGOP. Um, I've thrown many fundraisers, both political and for, you know, other, you know, nonprofit organizations raising hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. You know, I, I have a role that is full of, you know, large dollar donors, but, you know, for every million dollars that we can raise from a single donor, we have to get 50,000, $20 donors. And that's a lot. And we're not going to win if we can't renew the confidence of the donor base and bring those large donors back to Michigan right now. They, they, the, the donor base has just lost confidence. They're still giving the money, but they're giving it to right to life, it to turning point action. Those donors are getting spent and donated. They're just not coming to the MIGOP. We need to bring those donor dollars back to the MIGOP so we could win. Question I have is when you look at kind of the recent slate of GOP leadership and also people running for this role, do you think there's an issue that, you know, some of them care more about building up their name ID as opposed to being essentially the wizard behind the curtain? Yeah, I think there's too many people here that are too concerned with fighting each other rather than beating Democrats. And, you know, there's a lot of people here who are trying to, you know, just build up their name ID for, you know, future elections, maybe running for governor again or whatever it is. And instead of having the best interests of the Michigan GOP and the, you know, the voters on people's names, just the mere fact that we have the terms uh, grassroots and establishment. And I keep on asking everybody as, you know, define those terms. And every single person gives me a, a different, a different definition of these terms. And uh, well, that means if I call somebody establishment, that means something completely different to you than it does to me. And we need to get rid of these terms, unite the party and focus on beating Democrats instead of beating up on each other. Because the Democrats are united. They have one common purpose and they are pushing forward with it. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important to say? Um, no, not right off the top of my head. I think, uh, I mean, if you have any questions, other questions, I'm, I'm here. Drew Bourne, he is a candidate for the Michigan Republican Party chair. Appreciate you being on the Murders Monday podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you bringing me in. Joining us now on the podcast is the former chair of the Washtenaw County Democratic Party and also a podcaster in his own right. It is Chris Savage. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on today, Kyle. How many times have you, or how many episodes have you, are you at now? We're like 191 this week, I think. So it's more of a hobby than anything, but I really enjoy it. It keeps me, uh, keeps me paying attention to things. So, And it's on Eclectablog. It's called G-O-T-M-F-V. Yes, the G-O-T-M-F-E show. See, you say it so easily, but it's so hard for me to... <laughs> well, I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a jumble of letters for me, but uh, I know what it stands for, and that, that's how I refer to it. The GOT stands for get out the vote and let you uh, fill in the MF. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, I wanted to have you on here to kind of set the stage for the Democratic convention that's going to be taking place next month. And obviously not the same type of consternation with the Republican one where we've got 11 people who have filed to run for the chairmanship. This one, we've only got two and it's really not much of a question. Um, yeah. Or is it? 
Is it a question or not? I, I don't think it's a question at this point. LaVar Barnes has done such a fantastic job as the chair. She really has transformed uh, the MDP into a, an organizing group that, you know, unlike it had ever been before. So I think that, uh, you know, it, it would take a miracle for somebody to unseat her at this point. And she's bringing on some great new people like uh, Jason Morgan uh, to work with her and and others. So uh, 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 Erica Geis. So uh, these are all really great organizers, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Before we get to Samantha here, what what is the future of the Democratic Party? What do you see as the future well, I, of the Michigan Democratic I, Party? You know, I've always contended that you know if you if you judge us by our uh, statewide races in general, we are a fairly blue state. I mean, we haven't had a a Republican U.S. Senator from Michigan since Spence Abraham, and that's been many years. Um, and, you know, we haven't had this trifecta for nearly 40 years. I, I was a little concerned that, they, you know, that they would not use this time wisely, but they have come out of the gate just, you know, ready to go and, and making up for lost time with six really amazing new bills uh, that they put forward and the ability to pass those. So uh, I think that they're ascendant. I think that they are, you know, they're going to solidify their position by getting them some things done for the for the people of Michigan, uh, including lowering the taxes of people, you know, that are not super wealthy uh, and, you know, getting rid of our 1931 abortion law that, you know, needs to be off the books. Uh, all these things are going to, you know, they're, they're going to rack up some victories that people are going to feel and see and that's going to do well for them. So I, I, I'm really optimistic uh, about the future. And especially now that we've got more fair districts, um, you know, we're going to have some real, you know, some real conversations instead of having it be, um, you know, messed up by gerrymandering, basically. Well, I mean, when you look at this trifecta, though, especially in the House and Senate, I mean, these are very tight two seat margins. Mm, that's true. How would you describe the dynamics that could potentially play out as you think of maybe moderate lawmaker versus progressive lawmaker? Yeah, I understand there's a little bit of back and forth between the governor and the state Senate and the state house over the earned income tax credit and how it will be rolled out. But I really do think that they will work that stuff out. Um, I understand that there are a couple of um, current state house members, uh, Larry, Laurie Stone out of Warren and Kevin Coleman in Westland, who are considering running for mayor. So if that happens, uh, that takes us back to 54-54. And, you know, we have two House speakers. And so that could change the dynamic, at least until those seats are filled. But I, I, I feel like there's a good sense of solidarity among the Democratic caucus in Michigan right now. And I think they'll work out their, their differences uh, in a way that, you know, benefits everybody. Now, on the Republican side, there always seems to be this internal strife. And I know that it's there on the Democratic side as well. Do you all just do a better job of hiding it than Republicans? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think it helps that we're not nearly as extreme in terms of our uh, our positions relative to how the voters of Michigan feel. So that that makes it a little easier to have conversations. And, you know, every family has their their internal, uh, you know, their internal strife here and there. But uh, I, I feel like they're going to work this out. You know, I, it's, it's a pretty nice, diverse group of young, largely young people compared to what it's been in the past. And uh, it's just it's diverse on uh, any number of measures that you could, you know, could name. Uh, and I, I really I'm positive about it. I really think they'll they'll work it out. I, I you know, we don't air our dirty laundry as much as the Republicans do. And I I think that's largely because a lot of the new people that are coming into the Democrat, Republican Party are just novices. They don't understand politics. And then um, talking about uh, your involvement in the party, you've been the Washtenaw County Democratic chair for 12 years. Is that right? I was on the executive board for four years uh, doing precinct organizing, and then I became the chair. So I was the chair for eight years, and then they had a new election in December, and I stepped down from that. So uh, we had a really good run. We came in with very little money, and 
not much infrastructure. We now have a, a very healthy budget. We've got a, a year-round office that we didn't have before. And we've got a precinct organizing um, organization that is unparalleled in Michigan, in my opinion. And, and I would rank it high in the country in terms of just getting people out to do stuff. We have hundreds and hundreds of people every cycle come out and do something for the election, whether it's helping distribute voter guides that we publish or volunteering to make phone calls or do texting. I mean, it's just people want, you know, they, they see that we're being successful and they want to be part of that. So um, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very bullish about uh, the future of the Washtenaw Dems. And I know it's in good hands with Teresa Reed and Justin Hodge as the chair and vice chair and the, and the team they put together. So you were, you were almost kind of Debbie Stabenow before Debbie Stabenow. You stepped down to let the younger people take charge. Yeah, that's, that's largely it. That's largely it. <laughs> it's funny because Debbie, I, I lived in East Lansing for many years, and Debbie was uh, was a legislator for me, so was uh, Gretchen Whitmer at one point. So it's been fun to watch all, all these people ascend to, to bigger and better things over the years. What did you think of uh, Debbie Stabenow stepping down? Well, you know, I understand it, you know, from a personal perspective in terms of my, you know, my stepping down was as much uh, to let new people come in as it was, you know, just, I felt like I had lost the energy for it. And I, you know, I, I never wanted to be, you know, sticking around after I had lost the the, the passion for it. Um, I'm really thankful that she did it early enough that, you know, we can get, get it resolved before the next election. We're not having these major battles right in the heat of an election. So um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes, but I, you know, she's had a great career. I think that, you know, she won a ton of elections over the years. She's done great things um, on the on the committees that she's been on. So I, I have nothing but admiration for her. Um, and then as far as her replacement goes, Alyssa Slotkin yeah, looks I, like she's in, right? Yeah, Alyssa Slotkin seems like the top one. Um, you know, Jocelyn Benson, of course, is in the mix. Mallory McMurrow, Garland Gilchrist, possibly Debbie Dingle, Haley Stevens. Uh, but I think Alyssa probably is, uh, is, the, is the, the favored one right now, I would say. And, you know, I think it's a smart move because she – has proven she can <clears throat> win tough elections in, in, in challenging uh, districts. And, um, you know, if you've ever talked to her and spent any time with her, she's just a really accessible person, very smart, very uh, personable. And I think that, uh, you know, she's got her heart in it. She's doing it for the right reason. She wants to make things better for people. The odds that we're going to have a primary, a competitive primary on the Democratic side for U.S. Senate. Oh, I think it'll be probably competitive. Do you? Yeah. Okay. With, with that many people. What's interesting is of all those names that I named, only one of them is a man. And so it would be interesting to see if, you know, if there were two or three women who were really, you know, showing great support, if they would, you know, somehow split the the vote of women uh, and allow somebody like Garland Gilchrist to, to come through. But eh, we'll see. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, and, and I was, I just asked that to, to see if you thought there would be a primary or if, Slot can yeah, just I mean, clear the field. That she would clear the field. I, I, I'm prognosticating a bit here, but I, I think that we'll have a primary. Do you? Okay. All right. Well, that's why I had you on there. I wanted to have you prognosticate. <laughs> yes. And while we're kind of talking about primaries, can you tell us some of your thoughts about Michigan pretty much being positioned to become an early primary state for uh, the presidential nominating process with the MDP and with the Democratic Party? Well, I think it's a smart move by the Democrats nationally because, you know, Michigan really is a largely a microcosm of the, the entire country in so many ways. We've got, you know, urban centers, we've got industrial uh, base here, and, you know, we've got people from just myriad demographics, and it really does um, look a lot more like America than a place like, for example, New Hampshire or, or Iowa. And so I think that's going to benefit us. I think it's going to bring a lot of attention, more attention to Michigan. I mean, we've got a lot of attention now because of our success in 2022. But going forward, we're going to have more, way more eyes on us. And that, you know, that 
That'll benefit a lot of folks, even people like us that podcast about politics. We'll have lots to talk about. But, you know, I do have to ask, though, you know, if Biden, President Biden runs again as an incumbent, I mean, will we actually see the kind of economic political tourism that occurs in a presidential primary year? No, I think so. Yeah, I do, because, you know, these votes are going to be so important. So yeah, but why would he pay to have a campaign team come to Michigan? Why would he pay for advertising if he's running unopposed in a primary? Well, he well in a yeah well maybe not so much in the primary part of it, but in the general election, I mean, it's going to be you know (laughs) if Trump runs again, which I suspect he will. I mean, keep in mind he he won this state you know not that long ago by ten thousand seven hundred and four votes, which is something I will never forget because you know if we'd worked a little harder in Washington County, we probably could have pulled those votes out of here uh, in that year. So, um, but I, you know, I think that, you know, I, he'd be making a huge mistake by not investing something in, uh, in Michigan because we, we bring a lot of electoral votes to the table. So speaking about the primary on the presidential side, does somebody challenge Biden? Yeah, I probably, but I don't think they'll be successful. I think that, you know, he's just racking up win after win. I, I know it's tough in this environment right now, but even as tough as it's been, he's just made, been able to accomplish quite a bit that nobody ever thought he would be able to do. So, um, you know, I think a lot of us wish that all these candidates that uh, that are run potential run, you know, ten, could potentially run for that were, were younger because it would give them more time. But, um, you know, I I think he I don't think he clears the field, but I think that he's the the dominant favorite if he decides to run for sure. What are the odds you think are that he does run again? Uh, 90 plus. <laughs> oh, do you really? You think it's really that certain? Think yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. I really do. He's just, he's, he's riding a wave of success right now. And, uh, he's, you know, his favorable ratings are going up and he's getting stuff done. So, I mean, that's the key to success for Democrats is getting things done. Yeah, I know you gave a little shout out to Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes. How would you describe or summarize the, you know, the pre-Lavora Barnes era of the Democratic Party? It's oh, a good question. I mean, I, I I really got involved with politics myself during the Obama campaign in 2008. And, you know, when I came in, you know, after that election, I, I had never really been involved in politics before. And I was just so impressed by their their ground game and how they just, you know, seemed to get everything right in terms of organizing people at the grassroots level. And I just assumed that that was the Democratic Party at the time. And then when I got more involved, I realized that that was a pretty much a unicorn. It was very unique in terms of his ability to get um, just average people to get out and knock doors and make phone calls and things like that. And so I think that there was not nearly the emphasis back then, uh, prior to Labora and even Brandon, you know, Dylan was part of the change, but, you know, and, and he and Labora were a team at the time, but I think she brings organizing chops to the table that, you know, previous chairs had not had. Um, you know, I, I'm friends with Mark Brewer and I have mad respect for him. Um, but I, I also value very, very much. If you look at my Twitter bio, it says, may the best organizer win. And that's exactly how I feel. I think that, you know, we have to be a, an organizing organization. And uh, she brought that to the table and, you know, with the Project 83 program has really put it into place and, and made it sustainable. So uh, I, you know, I, I think she really has transformed the party, um, uh, you know, in, in positive ways. And I think it's really good, good for democracy. How do you think uh, Kamala Harris is doing as the vice president? Such a tough job, right? I mean, you know, the the, the vice president just doesn't get the kind of uh, ability to to wield power that that the president has, um, and they don't have. They're frequently not as visible. So, 
it's tough to gauge uh, her success because, you know, vice presidents are, you know, consigned to going to funerals a lot of the times, unfortunately, and they don't get the the notoriety that that the president gets. But I'm, I'm a big fan of Kamala Harris. She was my second choice after Elizabeth Warren and in uh, the election where uh, Biden won. So it's got to be a great time to be a Democrat, isn't it? It is in Michigan. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not sure elsewhere, but you know, I'm not so worried about Michigan. I, I do worry about some of these other states. And, you know, if we could get, you know, the kind of uh, voting reforms in other states that, you know, prevent the gerrymandering that really, really botches up uh, democracy, um, then, you know, we, we could have legitimate conversations and, and debates and battles uh, in politics. Uh, but gerrymandering really obscures a lot of that because people are almost compelled uh, to run the most extreme uh, campaigns because otherwise they don't get past the primary. So um, you know, that, I'm, I'm very concerned about that in other states, and I, I don't see it getting better in a lot of the places that, they, that needs to get better. So, But thankfully in Michigan it has. I do want to dive into a particular policy issue that I've been reporting a bit on. And Democrats is a minority. They've introduced, you know, the Reproductive Health Care Act. And now they're in a position to kind of produce the post-row, post-passage of Proposal 3 abortion reform for Michigan. And I know in the past, Democrats have called for eliminating parental consent and, you know, some other things. But, you know, so what happens now? You know, are they going to stick by their original advocacy or are they going to amend some things because of the proposal three debate? That's an interesting question. I don't really know the answer to that. I do think that, you know, the the campaign for for Prop 3 in Michigan in 2022 is a model uh, that is being studied and emulated in other places uh, to pass similar ballot proposals. Not everybody, not every state has the same type of ballot uh, availability that that we do here in the state for uh, for ballot proposals, but um, you know, to the extent that that other states do, I think that the, the Prop Three program and and how they ran it uh, is going to be something that people really want to, you know, emulate and and, and mo- use that as a model because they were super smart about their communication. They didn't fight their 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 debates on on their opponents' terms. They did it on their own terms, uh, and they communicated about it really really smartly. I thought so, um, but I, I think that right now getting into to the nuances like parental consent i think that's probably down the road um i think that the first thing to do is to shore up reproductive rights and abortion rights across the country in states that you know are looking literally looking at criminalizing it making it uh so that uh, pregnant people and 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 abortion doctors could literally go to prison for for performing a medical procedure that's been legal for 50 years Chris Savage, he is the former chair of the Washtenaw County Democratic Party and also a um, the editor of Eclectablog and uh, one of the hosts at GOTMFV, a podcast that you can get on Eclectic Blog. Appreciate you joining us here on the MERS Monday podcast. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. We'd like to thank AT&T for sponsoring this and our other podcasts. Post-production of the Murders Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okamas. Also, thank you to Bill Ballinger for joining us in the early section of the podcast. Drew Bourne, the Michigan Republican Party chair candidate. And, of course, Chris Savage from Blog and the former chair of the Washtenaw County Democratic Party. For the boss, John Rurink and Samantha Schreiber, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care.